Amen. Thank you, John, Christy, Heidi. Appreciate that much. If you grab your Bible, join me. First of all, we're going to look at Mark chapter number 12. Mark chapter number 12. And uh, we'll look here in a passage, and then we'll turn to Acts chapter 26. So if you'd like to find both of those, we'll read both of these passages to begin with. Uh, if you're a visitor, maybe you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we do have some for you there in the back of the pew. And Mark is found in page 599, that particular verse. And so if you need a Bible, please grab that. Follow along. We'd love for you to be able to see God's Word for yourself. Page 599 in a pew Bible there in front of you. The title of the message is simply this, Almost Has Never Been So Bad. Almost Has Never Been so bad. We'll see what that is, what that's all about as we get into these two passages. Mark chapter number 12. Let's look at verse 34, if you will, with me. Mark chapter 12, verse 34. If you have a red letter edition, you'll know that some of the words, part of the words here are of Christ. And so you'll see that. We'll read just the verse. Then we'll go over to Acts chapter 26, read that passage, and then we'll delve into and explain a little bit about both. Verse 34 of Mark chapter 12 says this, and when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he's speaking of a scribe there above. Uh, He said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. No man after that durst ask him any question. We turn over to Acts chapter number 26, if you will, with me. Acts chapter 26, Paul uh, has given a great discourse. We'll speak of it here in a moment. But we come to verse 28 near the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, King Agrippa, as he's referred to in verse 27, we read in verse 28, Speaking of this King Agrippa, then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Jesus Christ said to the scribe, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, because of his answer to Christ's questions about the commandments and things. What are these two verses, one of the things that they have in common? Well, could we describe it this way? They, they both describe an experience that was about to happen that seemingly was going to come to fruition. We might put it this way. They were on the verge of it materializing, and yet it didn't happen. Have you ever been going on a trip or whatever the case may be or flying somewhere and you got to the airport, you went through security, maybe you checked your bags, you have your tickets, you sit down at the, the gate to, to load onto the, uh, the airplane and all of a sudden up on the screen it, it says your flight has been delayed. Or worse yet, you're ready to board, you're ready to go and all of a sudden they say your flight has been canceled. What a joy, amen? That's something to rejoice in, Amen. Rejoice in all things, all right? Always rejoice. Uh, that's happened to some of us before. That's really what's kind of described in these two verses, if you could put it that way. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. On a maybe more humorous note, have you ever had the situation, uh, an instance where um, you're taking a drink, a cup, for instance, like I have my water here just in case uh, throat gets a little dry. Have you ever had one of those instances uh, where you've gone from taking a cup to your lips and everything looks great, you've done it a million times, but something goes wrong at the last moment? And you miss your mouth. And all of a sudden, you just dribble down yourself. You don't have to admit it this morning, I promise you. We won't ask for a raise of hands. You ever have that happen? Where just, you're like, what in the world happened? And you kind of look down. You've done this a million times, and you were almost there. Boy, I hate when that happens. I had that happen just a couple days ago at the Young and Heart activity. I just took a sip of water. I don't know if I was distracted or what. All of a sudden, I felt something wet right here. I'm like, well, do I have a hole in my mouth? Yes, a rather large one. <laughs> I don't know how I can miss something that big, but I did. 
at least partially. You know, it's funny, there's an old proverb that says something to that effect. It, it goes like this, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. So it is. You know, the fact is, what would we describe that as? Well, in one word, we say almost. Well, I was almost there. It was almost completed, the, the sip, the drink. I, I almost had it. And what is almost? It's nothing but failing really close to the objective. Nothing but falling short really close to the objective. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 34, when Christ was speaking to the scribe, uh, his response, he said, you've answered well to Christ's statement, to my statement about the great commandment. Literally, in the description of the verse, we could say this about the scribe. He had found the wall. He had found the gate. He was close to the kingdom of God. But don't be mistaken, he had not yet entered the kingdom of God. He had not gone through the door. Jesus Christ said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in. He had not quite found it. Now, by faith, he had not put his trust in Christ. There's an old Danish, I've read, there's an old Danish proverb that says, almost never killed a fly. The sobering reality is that a person who is almost saved can die and spend eternity in hell forever. You see, Such an instance seemed to have followed the passage here in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28. Here's King Agrippa. He had just had the privilege of listening to a a wonderful, terrific uh, presentation of Paul and his background, yea, more so his conversion, how he came to know Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and how God had revealed himself to him and how, how Paul had surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ and who he was. Agrippa had heard this stirring presentation and that's where we read those famous words almost thou persuadest me to be a christian now may we just interject here what a what a glorious opportunity paul had may i submit to you this morning that paul was indeed a a prisoner and and as such he could do some work for god and the work of god that only he could perform as a prisoner May I submit to you this morning, the fact is this, there is some work of God that only an imprisoned person can perform. Paul was the called instrument of God to present the gospel to rulers such as Felix and Festus and Agrippa and eventually Caesar himself. That would have never happened if Paul was not a prisoner Never would have been accomplished. You see, just like Joseph of the Old Testament, here we have Paul in the New Testament, that through his chains, he went from the prison to the palace, and all along the way, what's Paul doing? He's preaching Jesus Christ. As he wrote later, we preach Christ crucified. That's what he did. That was his job, his response, his call, and and he as a prisoner could perform it. May I just simply say this this morning? Maybe you are in prison today. Oh, not in brick and mortar, but you are in prison by a difficult situation. A circumstance that seems overwhelming and has you tied down in a sense. Maybe, just maybe, you are, you are in a tight corner or spot at work. You're imprisoned by it. Maybe for you, your prison is one of health. A difficult situation in the family. You may be a prisoner. You may say, I, I, I've asked God to take this away and to deliver me and to get me out of this, this prison. 
But God said, no, I have you there for a reason. This is your platform. May I say, perchance, maybe your prison is health issues, and maybe you're going through cancer, or maybe you're going through something else, some other type of health issue, and it's your prison. May I say this, within your prison, you may come shoulder to shoulder with a nurse, a doctor, a fellow patient. They may not share your prison, but friend, they have a dire, desperate need for the Savior. And your prison then becomes a platform that God has ordained, that he has brought you to, to present him to a needy world. Such was Paul. He didn't complain about his chains. He, time and time again, wrote, may these redound to the glory of God. May me and may myself and my imprisonment be something that brings God glory. May he do that. So may I ask you this morning as prison, that literal prison was Paul's platform. What's your platform today? What difficult situation? What, what, what you describe as your prison that God has you in and, and in our own self-focus, maybe even our own carnality, we've lamented, we've complained, and we've whined about that prison, and yet the reality is God wants you to use it. God wants you to make it your platform instead of a pity party. God wants you to turn it into what it ought to be for His glory. I love this passage, and there's certainly been great outlines before. I'll borrow some from some of those. But I want you to see from Acts chapter 26 a couple thoughts. First of all, notice from Agrippa what we have. We have the noblest of ambitions to be a Christian. Now, I find this amazing. Here is King Agrippa, and he uses the terminology. He uses the name Christian. Uh, it's often been said, what's in a name? I asked, and the meaning of names and so forth. Well, Agrippa seemed to say, hey, this is important. I'm going to say, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So even today, he puts before us that that name means something. He would not have used it if it didn't mean something. He would have not made it a, a statement, a part of his statement, if it didn't indicate something. So maybe even for Agrippa, and in that day for Paul, what does it mean to be a Christian? And even today. Well, first, let's look at some things that it isn't. First of all, being a Christian is not one, or a Christian is not one, simply brought up in a Christian home. A godly heritage is little more than a positive influence in our lives that we should be thankful for. Now, be thankful for it, but it doesn't accomplish much more to that. May I put it this way? A godly heritage, a godly home influences us to be a Christian, but it does not establish us as a Christian. Okay. Crucial statement, young people, crucial statement. Praise God. Be thankful if you grow up in a Christian home, but it can influence you to be a Christian. Fantastic. But it does not establish you as a Christian. Only faith and trust in Jesus Christ does that. Personal faith in Him. It is sad to hear that someone professes to be a Christian because their parents are. Because their grandparents belong to such and such a church or, or they grew up and they themselves grew up in a Christian home. I like how one author put it. He responded this way, grace does not run in the blood. I would add that it doesn't run in human blood, but it does run in the blood of Jesus Christ, shed on the cross of Calvary. So grace was established. Nothing can replace a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. 
Oh yes, let's praise God and the praise the Lord for godly homes and Christian homes. But when that becomes our claim for salvation, we turn a great blessing into a damning curse. I shudder to think that there might be people in hell who cry out, but I grew up in a Christian home. But God, I, I, I had parents who prayed for me. But God, I, I, I had a home. Where we went to church and it, it was, we read the Bible. God. And yet God says simply to them, depart from me, for I never knew thee. No personal relationship established on personal faith. Number two, a Christian is not one that is simply connected to a Christian church. Oh yes, it's God's established plan. It's spelled out clearly and obviously in the New Testament here in the Scriptures. All Christians are to be part of a local church serving and functioning within its needed ministries. But it's sad to say that there are likely even today many people who are members of a church but not members of the true church, the body of Christ. Simply because they have been confused as to what truly makes them a Christian. May I tell you this, I find it so very sad that even in our neighborhood, in the thumb of Michigan, there is the heresy that infant baptism makes one a member of a church and therefore muddies the water about salvation in Christ alone. We must both remember and proclaim that salvation or being a Christian, um, don't miss this, being a Christian is not about being in a place, it's about being in a person, Jesus Christ. That's salvation, friend. In fact, that is exactly why the church exists, isn't it? Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell a lost and dying world that they need a Savior named Jesus Christ. May I also submit to you, thirdly, a Christian is not a person who practices Christian principles and duties. I should say just practices. This is the proverbial cart before the horse, isn't it? Are we to practice Christian principles in our lives, fulfill the duties lined out in Scripture? Certainly we are, but that follows being a Christian, being a believer. To do it, to perform those duties and follow Christian principles in hopes of becoming, through those actions, a Christian is a dangerous misconception. Just because one prays, witnesses, goes to church, gives a tithe, reads the Bible, tries to live according to biblical principle, does not make that person a Christian. Certainly Judas and others prove that to be so. To be godless is to be without God. To be Christless is to be without Christ. It is sad to say that we have seen it by mere example and demonstration throughout the world and through every age. You can be a religious person and not have a personal relationship with Christ. Just because you live like a Christian does not make you a Christian, just as the old illustration says, if you live in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. So coming to church, doing what a Christian does, none of these things makes me a Christian. No, the reality is simply this. I am a Christian because of my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I have a personal relationship with Him. 
You know, interesting, we'd have to then say, okay, if that is not what a Christian is, then what is a Christian? Interestingly, the term Christian is used three times in the New Testament. The first one, you'll see it here, is found in Acts eleven twenty six, the last part of that verse. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. After a great description of what they were doing, how they were living for the Lord, and reading His Word, and studying, and they were just uh, really following Christ. So they're called Christians. Secondly, obviously, this passage, Acts chapter 26 and verse 28. Interesting enough, you have a, a lost, uh, secular, probably very much a worldly King Agrippa look at, at Paul and call him a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And then last but not least, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16 says simply this, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. From the context of each of these passages, we can easily deduce that a a Christian is one, now don't miss this, who thoroughly identifies with Christ in life, in action, in thought, and in word. And such identification starts with the foundation of a personal relationship with Christ through faith. So you want to be a Christian, it starts with identifying with Jesus Christ in faith. And one of the ways we proclaim that is through baptism. Baptism that comes after being saved. Because you're announcing and proclaiming to a world and the church, I have trusted in Jesus Christ. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. Literally, I am a Christian. I have put my faith and trust in Him. I'm part of the family of God, the body of Christ. I like how one author put it. I think it's a great statement, one worthy of even writing in your Bible or somewhere in your notes. He said this, and I think it's well stated. Speaking of a Christian, what is a Christian? He is one who is in Christ for salvation, like Christ in character, for Christ in witness, and with Christ in companionship. It's a good statement, isn't it? In Christ for salvation, like Christ in the character I display, how I live, my behavior, our communication even as the Bible describes it and uses that term concerning our lifestyle. For Christ in witness, I cannot speak of anything else but my Savior who loved me and died for me. And then last but not least, with Christ in companionship. You know what that is? That's walking with Him daily. Enjoying sweet fellowship and communion with our Savior who has done so much for us. Great statement, great truth. You want a good definition of a Christian, I think that's it. And so that is the noblest of ambitions to be a Christian. And I would challenge you, if you're, if you're striving today to be a Christian, fantastic. I'm glad you're at church, but that won't make you a Christian. You, you may have given in tithe. You may do some things. You may read your Bible. Praise the Lord. That's fantastic. That is good, but that doesn't make you a Christian. But I grew up in a Christian home. Fantastic. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So start there today. It's the noblest ambition. It's the noblest desire and goal to to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But we also glean something else from this passage that I think is good for us to note. Number two, not only the, uh, the greatest of it or noblest of ambitions, but we see the gentlest of means. He said this, thou persuadest me. It has been said that persuasion is more effective than force. Persuasion is more effective than force. I would dare say that history has certainly proven that to be true. You and I both know that conversions, faith and trust, maybe in Christ or some deity uh, that are elicited by force are both short-lived and likely false. (laughs) 
So force will not accomplish much. It may in the immediate, the temporal, but in in the longer, uh, eternal, it does not accomplish much. Persuasion. The word persuade means to convince, or as one likes to state it, to speak winning words. I don't want you to miss this. As Paul is speaking to King Agrippa and all those there in that throne room, if that's what you could describe it as, the fact is this, he wasn't trying to coerce Agrippa. He wasn't trying to trick Agrippa in an assault against his will and his personal desire. Quite the contrary. Every part of Paul's conversion story dripped with persuasion. It was presented in such a way that that Agrippa was drawn, not dragged, by the power of Paul's conversion persuasion or presentation. Don't miss that. Here's not Paul saying, uh, just screaming, yelling at Agrippa. He's not there just threatening him or by coercion or force saying, you've got to trust him. No, Paul is simply sharing, hey, here's what God's done for me. Here's what God's word says. Listen, Agrippa. God is good. Literally, Agrippa is drawn, not dragged. He is drawn by the power of Paul's conversion presentation. I just imagine, forgive me, and I I know it's somewhat reading between the lines, but I just picture there Agrippa sitting on the edge of his throne. As Paul speaks of what had happened there on the road to Damascus and how Paul's life had changed 180 degrees, based upon Christ's intervention on his behalf. And I would tell you this, and I think this is crucial for us to understand. It's the gentlest of means, and yet this was something that Paul was not unfamiliar with himself. He's not using something that he doesn't know well. The fact is this, long before he was an instrument of persuasion, he was the object of persuasion. He himself was persuaded on that road to Damascus. I love it. Uh, Later in Romans, he writes this in Romans chapter 14 and verse 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. He goes on to speak of unclean and clean, literally about the principles of living the Christian life. So what we see is this. Just as he was persuaded not only in salvation, but also in how to live out the principles of the Christian life, Paul set about to persuade and woo others unto Christ, just like he was. I mean, even on that road to Damascus, we don't find Jesus Christ corrosively and forcefully forcing Paul to trust in him. No, that was an obvious response to the revelation of Jesus Christ to Paul. A willful choice on Paul's behalf. And so Paul stands before Festus. Paul stands before Felix. Paul stands before Caesar. Paul stands before Agrippa. And he shares his conversion story. And as he does, Agrippa's heart is gripped. Agrippa is persuaded, almost, to be a Christian. Tugs at his heart. It was not Festus and Felix and Agrippa alone. Acts chapter 19 and verse 8 speaks of Paul. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months. Now, that, that's one long message, amen? Okay, I know it wasn't just continue, but I don't want to hear any complaints about long preaching. For three months he went in there, day after day after day. Notice what he did. Disputing and persuading of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Paul's heart was to persuade. Paul answered the call. He was sent by God to persuade. 
We would be amiss if we did not point out that it's clear from the Scriptures and John and uh, that the Holy Spirit has as His means and His work today in the world, even today, to persuade people of the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul, John recorded that Jesus Christ said that, that the Holy Spirit is persuading people of the truth. The powers of persuasion are even today alive and strong within the spiritual realm. And may we never forget that even our enemy, Satan, is a master of persuasion. He performed it masterfully in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? His attempt to destroy mankind. And you can be assured that he is hard at work employing it even today. Furthermore, you and I are called to be instruments of persuasion like Paul. Wherever God plants us, the fact is this, you and I are called to be a voice of persuasion. And you and I are to be motivated by something that you and I know that maybe others who are not exposed to the gospel might not know, that life is short. It's even but a vapor. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. See, Paul wrote later in 2 Corinthians, he says, listen, Corinthians, believers, here's the reality of what we do. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We know the judgment that's going to befall sin and sinners. We know what faces people as they enter into eternity without faith and trust in Jesus Christ, without a Savior. We know that. You and I are well-versed. We've studied God's Word. We've been exposed to the truth. We have embraced it. We have surrendered to that reality of what eternity holds. And my friend, that ought to be the greatest impetus for you and I to persuade people. To do as Paul did. To be that instrument of persuasion. And so even today, you and I are in a spiritual battle with Satan and his forces for the souls of men. Oh, I readily admit it is an uphill battle, which we can become easily discouraged as it seems so few are willing to be persuaded. One has rightly observed the majority around us appear to be so dead to both heavenly and human persuasion, but so open and responsive to satanic seduction. It's true. It's true. But we ought not to be surprised because has it not been so from the Garden of Eden onward? Adam and Eve had everything. Adam and Eve had the promises of God, the the heavenly persuasion, don't eat of it, don't eat of it, and along comes Satan. So easily given in to. Even in Christ's day, people were more readily given to give in to the lies and deception of Satan than the invitations and offers of a forgiving Savior. It was seen in the parable of Lazarus, wasn't it? And the rich man. It was stated about the rich man's brothers as he asked for them, uh, for someone to go back and tell them, hey, could someone just go back and tell them that this place is real, that there is such a place as hell? You remember the response? Quite damning, wasn't it? He said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I don't know about you. We often think, boy, if someone rose from the dead, that'd be pretty persuading, wouldn't it? If you could ever stop running, screaming, 
That'd be pretty, that'd be pretty persuasive. What if someone rose from the dead and said, hey, this is what life is about. Now, don't I find this interesting? Now, listen to me. I don't put a, an ounce of credence in books and videos that uh, people have died, they've seen the afterlife, and they come back. And, you know, I don't put an ounce of credence in it. But isn't this amazing? If those things were really true, shouldn't that just wake up the entire world? If someone says, I died, and I went into eternity, and this is what it is, and they wrote a book about it, should it not only be the best-selling book, but shouldn't it be a book in every language and every home around the world? Because, my goodness, that's persuasive, if it were real. That's persuasive. But isn't it amazing the majority of the world still says, eh, no thank you. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's exactly what the Scripture said. The one come back from the dead, they would not be persuaded. And may I say that that was actually already fulfilled because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He showed himself to people. He was seen of many, and yet they were not convinced. They were not persuaded. And yet, here's the reality. Just like Paul you and I must nevertheless endeavor to be the means of persuasion, the voice of persuasion, and the tool of persuasion wherever God has put us. Paul was in prison. He was before Festus and Felix. He, he, he was before Agrippa and Caesar. That was the place that God had placed him and put him. He was in the temple and the synagogues and among the Jewish people and then the Gentiles. That was where God put him to be a voice of persuasion, a tool of persuasion, the means of persuasion. What's your place? What's your platform? And as you have it, are you fulfilling that? Have you gotten discouraged? Because listen, hey, you just said it, Pastor Henry. No one listens. They're not open to persuasion. My friend, it is not for you and I to make a decision for someone. It is but for you and I to present the truth. And allow the Holy Spirit to drive it home and do the greater persuading than even you and I can do. And then it is, as it was for each one of us, the free will of man to choose to put their faith and trust in Christ. And so, friend, our job is to persuade. You and I need to have the same heart attitude and continual prayer that Paul expressed in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. Notice what he said. He said this, Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And boy, is that not what we want. Every person to be confronted with the truth as Paul did with Agrippa, and then to be, not almost, but fully persuaded in their own mind and heart. And yet the saddest part of all in this story is the remainder of Agrippa's statement, isn't it? Look at verse 28 again. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. We've had certainly already the noblest of ambitions to be a Christian, the gentlest of means thou persuadest me, and then the nearest of responses, almost. Almost. I like Psalm 73. It's written by Asaph, and I like verse 2 in there. It's a description, likely, of a difficult time he was going through in life like you and I, and he was speaking of discouragement. He was speaking of a a downcast moment, a a time in his life where he was probably faced disappointment and so forth and so on. And He wrote this in in verse number 2, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My, My steps had well nigh slipped. Almost his foot slipped, is really said. Well, nigh, it, it almost slipped, it almost fell. I, I, I'd almost fallen. 
Have you ever almost fallen and just caught yourself at the last moment? Tripped on something, or maybe you're on the edge of something, and you started to teeter, and boy, you caught yourself, or maybe you were caught by someone else. Oh, certainly I get it. The psalmist here is speaking of his soul and his spirit giving up, falling into despair and discouragement, no doubt about a, maybe an enemy or some kind of oppression or some kind of circumstance in his life. And I, I get that. And yet we read this wonderful statement, tw- verse 23 of the same chapter. You know what he says? I love this. He says this in the last part of the verse. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Hey, here I am, I'm about to fall, and, and boy, I, uh, life is too difficult, and boy, it's overwhelming, and, I, and all of a sudden, what happens? God reaches out a hand and grabs him, steadies him, holds him up. And Asaph's like, man, almost, that circumstance almost just engulfed me and overwhelmed me, and it took me, it, it, it almost doomed me. And there I was, and, and God reached out with his hand and he grabbed my right hand and he held me up that is a terrific truth isn't it no doubt you and i have faced that in our own lives no doubt that you and i have gone through those same times and we've teetered and so forth almost i fell but we have the complete other end of the spectrum here in acts chapter 26 oh it uses that terminology of almost but there's a great great lee more haunting description here. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The term there is very similar to what we may have seen in Psalm chapter 72. The word almost means literally to be near. As John, or excuse me, Mark 12 said, Grippa, like that scribe, was near the kingdom of God, but sadly not in it. A little more to go. He was a little ways off, uh, just a little bit more, and he would be there. As we like to say in maybe American terminology, he was so close, but yet so far. As a child, I remember saying this statement, almost doesn't count except in horseshoe hand grenades and nuclear bombs. We added that in the 80s. Horseshoes, hand grenades, and nuclear bombs. May I also say this? Almost doesn't count spiritually. Doesn't count in salvation. You're not almost saved. You're either saved by the blood of Jesus Christ or you're not. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. See, almost saved, almost persuaded is still on the outside looking in. In the case of Agrippa, it's been described this way. I think it is an apt description. In his mind, he was on the point of conviction. In his heart, on the point of persuasion. And in his will, on the verge of decision. Almost. And yet, as far as we know, almost saved, led to completely lost. For all of eternity. Now, I want you to see something. We'll be done. Paul didn't want that to happen. Paul's heart grieved. Paul, who wanted and had a desire to persuade all people of who Jesus Christ is. We see it even back in, in Romans chapter 10. Boy, he, he has desire for all of Israel that they trust Christ. And he didn't give up his own faith if it were possible. So Israel, this was hard. This, this stabbed Paul's heart. Notice what we read in response in verse 29. Notice what Paul says. And Paul said, 
I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Man, what a prayer. Man, I put it this way. We, we, we've gone through, we've seen the, the reality of the noblest of ambitions, the gentlest of means, the nearest of responses. Man, I put before you, we see the greatest of passions. The greatest of passions I would to God that all were altogether such as I am. What a response. Can we just put it this way? What did he want? He wanted to see Agrippa's almost replaced with altogether. Paul's desire was for Agrippa to be altogether saved as he was. Altogether a Christian. Altogether a child of God. Altogether enjoying the abundant life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Altogether reaping the benefits of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. This is the greatest of passions. It is a passion that Paul witnessed in the ministry of Jesus Christ through the stories told and the things that he heard. It was a passion that he saw demonstrated in the lives of the disciples as they helped grow the infant church and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world from Jerusalem outward. This is the greatest passion a human being can have for his fellow human being. It is not to put a morsel of bread in their mouth. It is not to give them clean water. It is not to give them shelter. It's not to give them healing for their physical ailments. Though those things are good, that help is certainly needed. Our greatest passion for those around us should be that they are altogether persuaded, altogether saved, and altogether with us in heaven for all of eternity. It must be our greatest passion as it was Paul. My friend, did he not know that Jesus Christ said, I am come to seek and to save those which are lost? Certainly, it was Christ's passion. I love what Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Speaking of Christ, he says this, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Forgive my juvenile enjoyment of play on words, but I am thankful that our God can take the almost and change it to save to the uttermost. That he can take someone that is almost saved and save them to the uttermost. Now listen to me. Listen to me careful. Lee. The mere fact that God can do that with anyone that even someone so hard and so secular and so anti-God as Agrippa could be almost persuaded to be a Christian to the point where, yes, that's the truth. Paul, I hear you. I understand it. I am at a decision point in my life that God could do that, that that could be worked in such a way that he was so willing to be persuaded should move us to have the same passion that Paul displays. You say, Pastor Henry, I have a coworker, I, I have a supervisor, I have a family member. They are so hard to the gospel. Great. But can I tell you, God can penetrate the hardest heart. Through your persuasion, the persuasion of the Word of God, and the persuasion of the Holy Spirit. My friend, this is a great story that God can do with any man. He can bring them to the point where almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And we trust they will employ their own free will to enter the kingdom of God. Where they would take for themselves the reality that Jesus saves 
and I am in need of a Savior. Therefore, I will trust in Him for salvation. Could I ask you, who is your Agrippa today? I just imagine, it's not recorded for us in Scriptures, and maybe it did not occur, but I do know this. If the opportunity afforded itself, it would have happened. I just wonder if there are other times not recorded for us in Scripture where Paul wrote to Agrippa. He continued to persuade. Agrippa, remember, you said almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Agrippa, remember that other time you responded to me in letter and you said, listen, what you said makes sense, Paul. Boy, I really need to think about these things. Agrippa, you said this. And I I just envisioned that Paul continued, continued. Because he had a great passion to do what? To see all men persuaded of the kingdom of God. Again, I don't know if Paul ever appeared before Agrippa again or not. I don't know if he ever wrote a letter, but I just surmise from knowing who Paul was and what he did that there was probably a letter to Agrippa or two. There was likely another appearance if he could in any way make it happen. And Paul once again presented the gospel to him. So may I ask you tonight, or this morning, excuse me, who is your Agrippa? Who is your Agrippa? Who's the person maybe you've witnessed too many times before? You've tried to persuade them. you try to see. Or maybe this morning, friend, you are Agrippa. You have never surrendered. You have never come to put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You've depended upon other things to call yourself a Christian. But reality is this morning, you yourself have never availed yourself of the simple verse that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, could I encourage you to stop being almost and be saved to the uttermost this morning? Make today the day of salvation. And then, Christian, could I challenge you? I don't know who your Agrippa is, but you keep persuading. You keep persuading. You don't give up. Keep going back. Be that voice of persuasion, the tool of persuasion, the means of persuasion that God has called you to be. Find your platform and use it. Philip Bliss, famed hymn writer. In fact, it's in our hymnal. He wrote, a, he wrote a hymn. It's entitled Almost Persuaded. Notice these stanzas, and oh, one of these is not even in our hymn book, but it is recorded. Notice it. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go away. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded. Come, come today. You see how he's personifying that person who's almost persuaded. Almost persuaded. Turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts of other people so dear. A wonder come. Then he gives a little challenge. Be now persuaded, O sinner, here. Be now persuaded, Jesus is near. His voice is pleading still. Turn now with heart and will. Peace will your spirit fill. Oh, turn today. And then there is one last sad verse. Well written by Mr. Blitz. Almost persuaded. Harvest is past. Almost persuaded. Doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail 
almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. My friend, my prayer for you today is that you will never say almost, but lost. Father, we thank you so very much for your word. More importantly, Father, I thank you so much for your heart, your love for every person that's ever lived. Father, I am grateful that you have made a way of salvation for each and every person. Yet you have put together such a perfect plan so that we can escape hell and gain heaven through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, you know my prayer this morning that there would not be one person here who is almost a Christian. There not be one person here who is trusting in their godly heritage or uh, their attendance to church or their fulfillment of Christian duties to, to, in their minds, be a Christian. Father, I pray that each person here would have a personal relationship with you through faith and trust in Christ. So convict this morning. I, I pray that there would, you would tear back the curtains of deception, that you would reveal that to each person here. They have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. May today be the day of salvation. May they do away with almost, and they, may they claim your promise of being saved to the uttermost. Then, Father, I pray for believers here. They have an Agrippa in their life. They maybe have a difficult situation that's in a prison to them. And, Father, they've become, they become discouraged, or maybe they just simply have never tried to persuade others. I pray you'd burden hearts to be that voice of persuasion that you'd work in each one of our hearts and lives. And Lord, may we realize the call upon us and may we see our opportunity where you have planted us to, to be that voice of persuasion. And with your help and your strength and your Holy Spirit guiding us and directing us, may we do just what you've called us to do. May we see those around us persuaded of the truth, of their need for Jesus Christ, and may we see them make a personal decision to trust him. Blessed today as only you can. 